it's a pleasure to be with you all today. And uh, so Dr. Tony and I have the uh, bacteremia and sepsis portion of uh, our bootcamp series. And um, so these are uh, kind of core topics. And particularly with regard to bacteremia, it is something that we see a lot in our day-to-day -day practice as infectious disease specialists. Um, my lecture today is meant not to be all-encompassing. Obviously, there's a, a lot more topics here to consider. These are kind of basic topics about the management of bacteremia and uh, how we, uh, you know, how we approach these patients. And uh, blood cultures are among the most commonly ordered uh, laboratory tests. Um, I, I think many of us can reflect when we're uh, on inpatient duty, we may order several sets of blood cultures on patients per day. And uh, in a prior series, about one in 10 blood cultures are positive. Um, and although um, gram-negative organisms were once the most predominant pathogen that we saw in uh, hospitalized patients because of the onset of, of uh, intravascular devices, prosthetic devices, uh, patients on dialysis and so forth, gram-positives are now the leading cause. And the most commonly isolated pathogen you know, no surprise is uh, coagulase negative staphylococcus. Blood cultures have a, a profound effect on the uh, hospitalized patient and on the hospital as well. The mean infection-related cost uh, estimated uh, at more than $67,000 for patients with, with hospital-acquired staph aureus bacteremia and a prosthetic device. And uh, even if you're coming from the community, the cost is considerable, about $38,000 for community-acquired Staph aureus bacteremia. Again, the cost difference there a lot of times relates to extension of, of a hospital stay and uh, uh, having all the complications of having a prosthetic device and requiring explantation and replacement and so forth. Dialysis patients also, uh, something like MRSA bacteremia has considerable uh, cost expenditure, and in not just in uh, sheer dollars, but also morbidity for the patient. And we all know intuitively that positive blood cultures are a significant reason why patients stay longer in the hospital, um, an average of uh, four days or more. Um, what you all may or may not be aware of is that uh, since 2017, uh, MRSA bacteremia is part of the CMS um, Hospital Acquired Conditions Reporting Program, tying the incidence of certain diagnoses to hospital reimbursement. So, and I've listed those uh, HAI, Hospital Acquired Infection uh, Diagnoses, on the right of the slide. So, if you have a MRSA bacteremia or a central line associated bloodstream infection, your hospital will be assessed. <clears throat> for uh, these diagnoses as being complications. So hospitals have a significant stake in preventing these conditions, including MRSA bacteremia. And um, if you have a bacteremia, of course, uh, your surgery may be canceled. Um, you may require explantation or replacement of a line. You're gonna require additional uh, costs even beyond the hospital stay due to uh, extended um, courses of antibiotics, and there's also additional infection expenditures as well. 
Now, the saga of positive blood cultures. Good morning, Dr. Tony. The, the saga of positive blood cultures begins with blood culture collection. And um, at, uh, at our facility and others, uh, we track contamination rates uh, for quality improvement purposes. And um, at, at my facility, for example, uh, contamination rates typically two to three percent, sometimes higher, sometimes uh, lower than two percent, but two to three percent is is on average. I think Dr. Tony will agree. And uh, the typical organisms we see in uh, blood culture contamination, coagulative uh, staph, uh, cyanobacterium, and so forth. And uh, most blood cultures are collected in the ED, and we know intuitively that the ED kind of presents the paradox of uh, blood culture collection in that there's less than ideal conditions, but at the same time, there's a lot of time stress to get these blood cultures collected and get these patients um, uh, to have a disposition forever they need to go. So here's a, uh, here's a typical uh, patient uh, getting blood cultures collected. And uh, we can see that uh, this appears to be a young patient, uh, healthy, young appearing arm. Uh, you see some uh, veins uh, uh, that appear that they can um, receive venipuncture. The uh, phlebotomist is applying an alcohol wipe and then some betadine. Uh, inserting the butterfly IV and placing in the blood culture bottle. The, these are kind of the sort of the ideal conditions. Doesn't, at least from the photo, appear to be very rushed or stressed. But we know a lot of times that this is uh, the ideal. And more likely than not, we're going to be seeing patients who have um, a lot of vascular fragility, uh, a lot of, of laxity of their skin, maybe veins that have collapsed. and. Uh, Maybe this can't be done in the most time-efficient manner. So a lot of times blood cultures are collected in a less than ideal situation, um, less than ideal than what we see here. And so um, as a response, you know, there's a lot of, a, uh, of attempts either through technology or training to reduce the contamination of blood cultures. So a lot of uh, hospitals, not sure about this one, but, uh, but certainly um, at our facility, uh, utilize what are known as initial specimen diversion devices. And this is one on the right, Steripap. And what they do is they attempt to reduce the potential for blood culture contamination by siphoning off the first 1.5 to 2 cc's of blood, where much of the contaminant uh, is believed to occur. Um, and, and then to permit um, all the blood that needs to be collected after that to be um, captured into the blood culture bottle. So um, uh, I, I know that uh, we've had some success with reducing uh, blood culture positivity with these types of devices. And then uh, where does the saga of blood cultures go to from there? Well, um, our blood culture systems. And uh, Dr. Tony and I um, are uh, uh, very, uh, ha have a lot of recall about um, the manual blood culture systems that we used to use before automation uh, became the accepted standard. And so in the old days, um, you had a, a manual blood culture incubation system and a series of racks. And one or two times per day, your blood culture technologist would open the machine, 
pull out the racks and uh, check each of the blood culture bottles individually for signs of uh, blood culture growth. There might be cloudiness there, slight color change, those sorts of things. And if, um, if the technologist noticed that the blood culture bottle was appeared to be having growth, then uh, uh, they would pull out some of the blood, place it on a, a, do a gram stain. And if it looked like the blood culture was positive, it would be called at that time. And, uh, and, and then they would uh, plate the media out and, and do the, the blood culture processing. So um, we would either hear about positive blood cultures say in the mid or late morning or the early afternoon. That was the standard. So now uh, blood culture systems are auto fully automated. And what that means is they use a, in most cases, a color metric system uh, with a sensor. And so if you invert a blood culture bottle, you'll see that sensor at the bottom of the bottle. Uh, and they read blood culture growth continuously. So you can get a blood culture called at any time. So this is a continuous monitoring. Um, this is more reliable because it uses a sensor. Uh, it permits high volume testing, uh, less technologist involvement, at least in this uh, initial positivity. And um, so the main two systems that I'm familiar with are the BACTEC and the MicroScan. So uh, at, at our at a facility across the street, we use the uh, BACTEC system uh, and uh, uh, cost of estimated cost of blood culture between 96, you know, around 100 to $400 um, on average. So um, your blood culture system, your blood culture is called positive, and uh, where do you go from here? Well, in the old days, we would uh, set up an uh, a plating on a on a culture uh, media it used to take from you know anywhere from 24 to five days for your blood culture isolate to be identified but the latest advancement in uh, blood culture uh, processing of course is our uh, mass spectroscopy with uh, Maldi-Toff. and so whereas previously we would uh, uh, subculture gram stain and go to a biochemical identification panel now um, you can, uh, through, the through this rapid identification protocol with Maldi-Toff, have an organism identification in as little as 10 to 30 minutes. And uh, uh, this is one of the main ways that we do rapid identification of positive blood cultures. The downside, of course, uh, for your susceptibilities, you still need to do uh, more standard testing. So you get called with a positive blood culture. What's your initial assessment? What are you looking for um, after your initial period of panic is over? Uh, you want to ask, is it, what's the gram stain results? Is it a gram positive cocci? Is it a gram negative cocci? Is it a gram negative rod? Um, are there single versus multiple isolates? Because we all know that um, a single positive blood, blood culture bottle is maybe less uh, specific for a true bacteremia than if you have the same isolate in all four bottles, right? So how many bottles are positive? Is the blood culture uh, bottle that's growing from the aerobic bottles or the anaerobic bottles? And uh, it seems like um, we still have plenty of issues in the modern day with uh, labeling blood culture bottles, right? Where did this come from? This positive blood culture did it come from a peripheral stick 
Was it from port number one or port number two? Was it from the dialysis catheter? A lot of times that information can be very helpful. And uh, sometimes it requires our, uh, our sleuthing skills to figure out. And, um, and also, um, what is the time from collection to positivity? So we all know that uh, um, the inoculum in a blood culture bottle really matters, right? So if you have a smaller uh, number of organisms that get inoculated in a specimen, uh, let's say from a contaminant or from a pathogen that really isn't in high quantity in the, in the blood system, uh, we're gonna tend to require a longer period of growth. But on the other hand, if this is a true positive blood culture and there's a high inoculum from the blood that gets uh, placed into the bottle, generally speaking, it's gonna be called positive a lot sooner. So there's a lot of conditions that are linked to having bacteremia, right? What are some comorbidities that tend to increase your likelihood of bacteremia? Um, you wanna think about chronic illness, malnutrition, Patients are on TPN. There are certain uh, organisms that are associated with uh, uh, positive blood cultures. Does a patient have a prior bloodstream infection history? And what did they grow um, on those occasions? And also patients who are at the extremes of age tend to have uh, less than optimal uh, immune system function and may be more susceptible to bacteremia. Also, we wanna think about our immunocompromised patients like those who have uh, stem cell transplantation, CAR-T and so forth. Uh, patients with uh, uh, immunodeficiency, particularly who have high-grade neutropenia or at highest risk, do so you wanna think about those where your neutrophil count is less than 100? And generally speaking, uh, hematologic tumors have a higher risk of bacteremia than solid tumors. These are some other considerations. What are the circumstances of collection? Was this collected in the ED? Um, you know, was, uh, was the ED having some issues this month or the UCC for that matter, having some issues this month with blood culture collection? Is there a lot of staff turnover? I mean, after all these days we're in the, what is they call it, the great resignation, right? Everybody wants to move on to a new job. Um, and uh, so uh, phlebotomy is actually a highly skilled uh, uh, you know, technique to learn. Um, you need to know how to collect blood in the most efficient and, uh, and, and uh, sterile manner, but with the high turnover we see these days, it's not always possible. Does a patient uh, have a medical device, an ICD, a central intravascular catheter, the presence of a prosthetic device, and do they have compromised skin or GI integrity? Um, are they a burn patient? Do they have uh, skin conditions like Stevens-Johnson's? Do they have interruption of mucosal barriers? You know, here at this facility, a lot of times patients have ablative uh, chemotherapy, their GI tract becomes uh, uh, less than totally intact and they get uh, gram-negative bacteremia from a GI source. And you wanna think about um, uh, pretest probability of bacteremia when you order blood cultures. The, these, these conditions have a high pretest probability of bacteremia. So if you're thinking about them, you may want to get a, a blood culture ordered or a set of blood cultures ordered because uh, chances are um, if the blood culture is positive, it may correlate with the presence of uh, an infection uh, due to one of these conditions. So discitis, vertebral osteomyelitis, there's a high pretest probability of bacteremia. And you want to think about that in reverse 
when, with somebody with, uh, for example, Staph aureus bacteremia has a, uh, has a positive blood culture, um, could they have viscitis and vertebral osteomyelitis as well? Meningitis has a high pretest probability. Septic joints, um, patients with catheter-related bloodstream infections, to name a couple on this list. Conversely, uh, these patients have a low pretest probability of bacteremia. So if you have somebody with uncomplicated cellulitis and you want to check blood cultures, chances are probably a lot lower that uh, they're going to have bacteremia. Uh, lower urinary tract infections like cystitis, less, less likely associated with bacteremia than pyelonephritis, for example. CAP and HCAP don't often present with bacteremia. And early fever after surgery and also eye, transient fevers not often associated with uh, bacteremia. So these are some characteristics of a true positive blood culture. Um, single pathogens correlate more with true bacteremia than multiple pathogens, and also pathogens that are consistent with typical blood culture organisms. So if you see a, uh, a Staph aureus growing from a blood culture or strep or enterococci, more likely to be associated with uh, a true bacteremia uh, rather than um, pathogens that are no, not normally associated. Um, and we'll go over those in just a second. Also, multiple positive cultures with the same pathogen. So four out of four bottles for Staph aureus. I would be concerned, right? I think all of us in the room would be. And also clinical symptoms consistent with bacteremia like fever or septicemia. Also, does the patient have uh, bacteremia risk factors like an intravascular catheter, or an obvious GU respiratory or vascular source. In, in, in uh, contradistinction, these are the characteristics of a false positive blood culture. Think about these. Was there a prolonged time to culture positivity? Did there, was the culture called 72 hours later? Um, was it a polymicrobial result, including some organisms that are normally associated with blood culture contaminants? So you have uh, you know, a positive blood culture that's reported in one bottle, for example, it has crinobacterium and coagulative staph in a patient with, without a central venous catheter. Uh, the, that sounds to me like it's more consistent with a false positive blood culture. Um, and uh, in a patient who's asymptomatic too, uh, no fever, signs of sepsis and so forth. Dr. Tony will outline those signs of sepsis in the second hour. So the following are blood culture pathogens that are frequently contaminants, coag-negative staph. Um, you know, you want to think about there's there's a lot of different coag-negative staph strains, epi, capitis, hominis. Think about those being frequently contaminants. Chronobacterium bacillus can cause true bacteremia, but usually there's a factor associated with it, a central vascular catheter, for example. You may think about Chronobacterium jkm or a or a device. Uh, bacillus species occasionally can be associated with uh, a Lyme-related infection, but in the absence of any indwelling device, these are frequently contaminants. Same thing with uh, Propionobacterium or Cutibacterium in the absence of a um, suspected source. Micrococcus as well. Virid and Streptococci uh, are uh, a little bit more uh, challenging in that you know, virin streptococci can cause endocarditis, of course, but uh, they can also be blood culture contaminants if there's low suspicion for a primary source. On the other hand, these are not usually or never contaminants. So think about uh, obviously Staph aureus 
or um, streptococci like like group A strep or group B strep, um, strep pneumonia, Clostridium, Listeria, uh, Candida species should be taken seriously. Cryptococcus, of course, sometimes can can be confused on blood culture for Candida, um, but uh, is obviously not or never a contaminant. And then we have our gram negatives, which are listed there. Um, Pseudomonas aeruginosa always needs to be taken seriously. Similarly, uh, Neisseria strains like gonorrhea and meningitis. And if you get gro growth of anaerobes from a blood culture, generally speaking, not a contaminant like bacteroides. I'm going to touch on a few uh, gram positive and gram negative pathogens that bear some further uh, mention. Uh, again, uh, for, for staph epi or for coagulase negative staph, yeah, I don't, you know, you have a lot of coag negative staph strains, staph epi, uh, staph conii, staph uh, uh, intermediate, staph saprophyticus. Generally speaking, unless you suspect a source, think about it as a contaminant. The exception, of course, is staph lugdunensis because that has clumping factor, it shares it with staph aureus, and so it has similar pathogenicity. So if you see a staph lugdunensis, treat it like staph aureus. Staph aureus, of course, a lot of times the first question that we ask is, is this MRSA versus MSSA? And it seems like, uh, at least in my experience more recently, we see a lot more MSSA occurring in the community and we tend to see MRSA uh, occurring in the hospital. Uh, if you had asked me that 10 years ago, there was a discussion about community-acquired MRSA. And we still see some community-acquired MRSA, but generally speaking, maybe through antibiotic stewardship and other interventions, um, we are seeing more MSSA infections. Could have to do with, uh, uh, you know, just the natural biodiversity of Staph aureus these days. Streptococcus species, um, beard and streptococci include all of these strains here. And um, again, if you're looking at blood cultures and you have positive growth of beard and strep, you know, here's some things I would ask. Is this one blood culture bottle? Is this a patient at risk for endocarditis or do they have another defi defined source? And, um, uh, you know, do I need to uh, screen for an endovascular infection? Is this a blood culture that is repeatedly positive or just one that's in one single bottle in an asymptomatic patient? That's going to help you determine whether viridin streptococci is a true pathogen or a blood culture contaminant. And enterococcus, of course, enterococcus fecalis being more associated with community-acquired infections versus enterococcus fecium, more a hospital-acquired uh, pathogen. But again, those are general distinctions and uh, cross-positivity uh, in the hospital versus the community can occur. And carinium bacterium and, and bacillus, we, we said, uh, typically speaking, are frequently contaminants unless you have a indwelling device or some other reason to suspect they could be associated with uh, some implanted uh, hardware or, or prosthetic material. Listeria, of course, you want to particularly worry about in certain risk groups like pregnant patients, the elderly, um, not typically, I would say never contaminant, and you want to take it seriously. And uh, although, um, you know, we tend to see more gram-positive bacteremias, these days, I would argue that gram-negative pathogens have 
are more of a management concern because of the high incidence these days of uh, gram-negative resistance. So when you have a positive blood culture for an enteric bacteria, you have to ask yourself, is this an AMPC, ESBL, CRE producing strain? Um, what do I need to do to ensure that uh, um, I treat this appropriately, at least initially because of the high association between gram-negative bacteremia and, um, and, and significant morbidity and mortality? And uh, uh, generally speaking, you want to look at what a patient has grown in the past and let that be a guide. Is this a patient who's had a history of ESBLs in the past? Do I need to cover them with a, um, you know, with an appropriate antibiotic like a carbapenem and, and so forth? Similarly, Proteus, Providentia, Serratia also can be uh, pathogens associated with, uh, with uh, antibiotic resistance. Pseudomonas bacteremia, very challenging to treat particularly when it's multi-drug resistant. And if you have Acinetobacter, Stenotrophomonobacteremia in your hospitalized patient, maybe think about uh, um, antibiotic stewardship, infection control concerns, and so forth. So, um, and of course the modified Hodge test isn't really used anymore. I just stuck that up for photo value. Um, so what are sentinel bacteremias? Um, the presence of these pathogens should make you think about something else. So Clostridium bacteremia, you want to think about uh, a skin soft tissue or a GI source. So um, does a patient have a crush injury? Are they at risk for necrotizing skin and soft tissue disease? Or do they have the potential for a GI malignancy um, like with Clostridium septicum? Same thing with Streptococcus gallolyticus, formerly known as Strep bovis. You want to think about an association with GI cancer. Burkholderia is significant. If you have a Burkholderia bacteremia, you want to ask, is this uh, Cepatia, a uh, hospital-acquired pathogen, or Burkholderia pseudomallei, which is a, you need to notify your lab that you could have a case of uh, malleoidosis. You want to look about it, look at it in the same clinical context of some association with malleoidosis. And again, the lab needs to know about it because uh, contam contamination or infection can occur if not handled properly. And listeria, the three categories are immunosuppressed patients, um, elderly, and particularly pregnant women need to be especially concerned about listeria because of the high risk of uh, morbidity and mortality from listeria sepsis in uh, a pregnant patient. So um, again, I, I know that today we're talking about just the basics, so I don't want this to seem too simplistic, but these are practical steps for managing a blood culture. Again, you want to establish whether it's true bacteremia versus a contaminant. A lot of times we're relied on to make that call. And so um, for, for those of you who haven't been in this place for very long, um, who are earlier on in your infectious disease journey, um, it just takes experience, right? And then also your understanding of the facts and the ability to look at the case and determine whether it's uh, true bacteremia versus contaminant. But once you've made that decision, um, if it's false, if you don't think it's a true bacteremia, you want to assess if there's reasons for contamination. Is this a patient with um, uh, poor skin integrity or hygiene? Um, where was this collected? Um, has the collection technique traditionally been good in your center in, in recent days or weeks, and so forth. And you want to document the risk factors and consider repeat cultures. 
If it's a true bacteremia, you want to assess for sources. Is there an indwelling device, uh, maybe a Foley catheter? Could there be a skin or soft tissue source? Um, is this a burn patient, for example, with uh, compromised skin integrity? It's a, a patient with profound neutropenia who has ablative chemotherapy and could have a bacteremia from a GI source. Is there another septic focus? Uh, and then you want to determine the need for treatment. Remember, it's our patients with grand negative bacteremia that have the highest acute mortality. Um, so uh, coverage for those patients has to keep that in mind and has to be rapid. Staph aureus bacteremia has the highest overall mortality, of course, and so always needs to be taken seriously. And uh, you need to, at least if you don't have the um, specifics of Staph aureus bacteremia back, you need to consider, do I need to cover this patient for MRSA or is this more likely to be MSSA? And of course, the, uh, uh, the MALDI-TOF is not going to tell you that. You need to wait for your biochemical determination. And Pseudomonas aeruginosa also has very high morbidity from infection. And uh, so that needs to be kept in mind. If it's true bacteremia, you want to address the underlying focus. Wounds need to be debrided. Osteomyelitis needs to be debulked. In infected devices should be explanted in the appropriate clinical setting. You want to also rule out septic thrombophlebitis. Sometimes we see patients getting a, a, a DVT that's with a septic component, and that's why they have their bacteremia. And you want to rule out an endovascular focus for pathogens that um, are associated with endocarditis. So if you have a patient with E. coli bacteremia, again, I would be less concerned about an endovascular focus. But if you have a patient with Staph aureus or um, or uh, enterococcus or strep or somebody with a prosthetic valve or somebody with a history of valvular disease or a murmur, then obviously you want to rule that out. And you want to promptly begin antibiotic treatment. Basic principles about antibiotic treatment. Um, you may need to kind of pull out your broad spectrum coverage until further blood culture results are available. But then when you have your susceptibility results, obviously in the interest of good antibiotic stewardship, you want to narrow your focus, narrow your, your coverage to the specific pathogen. Um, you want to use pharmacokinetics to your advantage. That's where our wonderful um, ID clinical pharmacists come in. They are always helpful to us with uh, recommendations and the best possible um, dosing. Uh, I'm not pandering to anybody in the room, of course, but uh, um, and some antimicrobial classes are preferred in bacteremia than others. So, uh, under good, I've, I've placed antibiotics that, you know, traditionally um, have characteristics that are ideal for, for bacteremia. So glycopeptides, daptomycin, beta-lactams, carbapenems, all get good intravascular levels, and uh, they have advantage for, advantages for uh, the treatment of uh, intravascular infections for bacteremia. But on the other hand, um, these are less ideal uh, uh, classes of antibiotics for the treatment of bacteremia. For example, uh, quinolones, um, you know, they, good, they get good concentrations within the blood, but um, because of quinolone overuse, uh, are, are you sure that uh, your ciprofloxacin is, is going to cover that E. coli that's in the blood? Um, so probably not the most ideal agent. Similarly, tetracyclines, like tetras, like doxy and tigacycline, not you know, are highly protein bound. Maybe not the best for intravascular infections. Trimethoprim sulfa, um, 
I, I would say um, kind of has more of a limited uh, gram negative spectrum of action. And so it's not the first thing I would go to if I were treating a gram negative infection and perhaps not the first thing I would go to if I was treating uh, gram positive bacteremia. And the oxazolidinones um, tend to be, you know, are reputed to be more bacteriostatic than bactericidal. So um, I would hold back the linezolid for treating Staph aureus bacteremia necessarily, at least I would do that versus another agent like vancomycin or daptomycin for that matter. Uh, it seems like one of the more difficult things that we confront is how long do we treat bacteremia? And uh, there's a lot of factors to consider there. A lot of times, um, if you're unsure, look it up. I, I find that up to date is, an, is really good at recommending durations for a lot of treatment of a lot of uh, syndromes, um, you know, and pathogen specific factors apply. Uh, you know, if you have a gram negative rod bacteremia um, and it's due to E. coli, you could probably treat that for seven days. But if you have a Pseudomonas aeruginosa bacteremia, I think a lot of clinicians would feel uncomfortable with that short a duration. They want to treat longer for an uncomplicated bacteremia, that is. And what is the role for oral therapy too? We'll touch on that in just a second. So um, just some pathogen specific uh, comments to make for Staph aureus bacteremia. Again, this is one of our um, big pathogens of concern, right? And we have to think, is this a primary bacteremia maybe due to an intravascular focus um, or is it a secondary bacteremia? Does the patient have a discitis or an abscess or something that is causing bacteremia as a secondary uh, syndrome? Is it complicated versus uncomplicated? Because complicated infections require longer treatment and maybe additional management versus uncomplicated infections, may, which may just require um, so, some simple source control and removal of the device. Is there a need for imaging? Um, do, does this patient need a, a TE, for example? Um, and uh, does the patient have a distant focus like vertebral osteo or discitis or an epidural abscess, for example? And what indwelling devices does the patient have? Uh, does the patient uh, have a ICD, for example? Simplest way I like to check go to your x-ray reader and look at a chest x-ray. I mean, you don't even have to approach the patient. You can still determine that. And also that applies to lines as well. And uh, we know that uh, the highest long-term mortality is from Staph aureus bacteremia. Enterococcus bacteremia, think about community-acquired infections with E. faecalis. Uh, these tend to be ampicillin and penicillin susceptible. Fesham, generally more associated with hospital-acquired infections or hospital exposure, often resistant to vancomycin and uh, the beta-lactams. And you want to think about biofilms playing a role in persistence of this pathogen. How many people have in the room, raise your hand, have seen a pneumococcal bacteremia? I, I see a couple of hands. And uh, so um, that can be scary if you have a patient with uh, um, a pneumococcal pneumonia. Oh, my patient has pneumococcal bacteremia. I haven't seen this very often. Well, uh, actually, pneumococcal bacteremia clears pretty quickly and it's very susceptible to antibiotic treatment and, and only requires a short course. So this one is more scary than perhaps it should be. And the enteric bacteria, um, it seems like these days we're going more towards seven days of treatment than 14 days. I think that's a good thing. 
Um, and uh, uh, you, of course, you need to ask yourself, does this patient have risk factors for AMP-C production in their gram-negative enteric bacteria, ESBL or CRV? Do I need to, um, can I start uh, more first-line coverage? Does this patient need uh, coverage with a carbapenem? And uh, also, what's the indication for aminoglycosides um, in, in enteric bacteremia? And as far as do I need to repeat blood cultures for clearance, I think that's something that has become less in the canon of, in, of uh, gram-negative uh, positive blood culture management because I think there was a recent study, um, and I don't have the author name, but they studied 500 cases of gram-negative bacteremia. Um, and uh, out of those, I think 77% had positive blood, had, uh, excuse me, um, had repeat blood cultures checked, and only eight out of the 500 um, actually had positive blood cultures for, the, for a gram-negative rod. So a lot of times, uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia doesn't necessarily need repeat blood cultures to document clearance. So I would say repeat your blood cultures selectively, because remember, when you repeat blood cultures, they have to be followed up. There's a cost associated with that, and you need to know when it's appropriate to do so and when not to. So for uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia, you don't necessarily need to repeat the blood cultures to document clearance. But on the other hand, if I have a staph aureus or an enterococcal bacteremia, I certainly would want to document clearance, um, or a pseudomonas bacteremia for that matter. And I'd love to hear others' comments about that. Pseudomonas difficult to manage, two weeks minimum, IV preferred, and potential endovascular pathogen. And if, uh, if you have positive blood cultures for endocarditis pathogens, like staph species, strep, viridin streptococci, rather, enterococci, um, you want to pursue that with echocardiography. Um, TE may be necessary, and these patients will need prolonged therapy if they have endocarditis or an endovascular infection and surgical consultation when advisable. Um, we've had a lot of discussions about that at our facility in uh, the last few months. So when is double coverage needed? I think this is something that uh, uh, clinicians ask a lot about. We get questions about this from uh, people who consult us. Um, so there are several instances where double coverage may be needed. For example, if you have severe gram-negative bacteremia, sepsis, um, is it initially appropriate to add an aminoglycoside to clear the bacteremia more quickly, also to provide a little bit of insurance that uh, you're not dealing with a multi-drug resistant strain? I think that many clinicians will say, yes, that's appropriate in certain circumstances, with the idea, of course, that um, uh, you want to narrow coverage as soon as you get those susceptibilities back. And if you have uh, a risk of multi-drug multi-drug resistant gram-negative bacteria until susceptibility results are known uh, in a significantly ill patient, then yes, that's appropriate. Um, also, uh, bacteremia with uh, enterococcal or streptococcal endocarditis, uh, dual coverage um, is in the guidelines, especially non-susceptible or prosthetic valve endocarditis. Um, and and uh, can anyone in the room think about another circumstance where you may need to double cover a patient? Um, let's let's expand the focus for anything. So when is double coverage necessary? 
Um, CNS infection, um, there, there may, it, it may be appropriate in some circumstances. What I was thinking about more is, you know, let, yeah, the addition of, let's say, uh, clindamycin um, in a patient with uh, necrotizing infection. Another circumstance would be like Clostridium difficile, severe Clostridium difficile disease, where you start your uh, oral vancomycin and maybe IV metronidazole. Um, so there are other areas where, or for example, um, you know, if you're adding anaerobic coverage, um, adding metronidazole to cefepime, for example, you want to double cover. So there's, you know, additional need for double coverage in some clinical syndromes, but for bacteremia, there's a limited number of indications. And when do you narrow therapy? Um, when you get those susceptibility results back, there, you know, the kind of the, the mantra that I go by is if you have your susceptibility results back and you know that a single agent, you know that monotherapy is effective, narrow your spectrum to monotherapy immediately. There really isn't any reason to double cover. Um, you know, patients should respond. And again, I'd love to hear others' comments. Um, and so in the modern day of getting patients to have a disposition faster and in the interest of good antibiotic stewardship, you have a case of bacteremia, when can you convert IV to PO? So if a patient's clinically improving, source control's achieved, they're able to take and absorb oral antibiotics, and the oral agent has adequate oral bioavailability. So you have a patient with uh, E. coli bacteremia with a susceptible strain, um, you know, you start your IV therapy, you get your susceptibilities back, it's susceptible to levofloxacin or ciprofloxacin or Bactrim, they're, um, they're clinically improving, you can go ahead and switch those patients to oral therapy if, it's, uh, if the agent has adequate oral bioavailability. So obviously for your gram-positive bacteremias, um, things are a lot more difficult. We don't have a lot of agents with high oral bioavailability for gram-positive infections. So um, you have to take that with, uh, with some uh, caveats, but um, but nevertheless, these are general guidelines. And what are post-treatment considerations? You want to reduce risk factors for recurrent bacteremia by minimizing line use, eliminating unnecessary implanted devices. I mean, that's really one of the major things we do, right? Um, prevention. We want to look at a case and see how we can prevent recurrent bacteremia. Um, so. Uh, if a patient has an ICD or has GU stents or has vascular grafts, um, you know, is source control going to be needed? Do those devices need to be explanted or replaced? Um, we need to think about those things. And if there's an endovascular source, um, it just it seems like it's more difficult these days to get uh, uh, valve replacement in a timely fashion at some of our centers, but we need to push for that when it's appropriate. And sometimes, I use surveillance blood cultures. Uh, so if, uh, if I'm not certain that I've treated a bacteremia for a long enough duration, um, you know, you can repeat blood cultures in a couple weeks. If they're still bacteremic, then obviously your initial course was inadequate and you need to look for a, uh, whether source control was really achieved. These are some of the resources I use for um, managing bacteremia. Again, the Sanford Guide, 
great uh, app available for your um, smartphone. Some swear by the Johns Hopkins antibiotic guide. That's great as well. Up to date is really good with with the uh, bacteremia duration, and uh, that's one of my favorites. So these are my summary points, and again, I think um, you know just developing the confidence in uh, managing these cases is uh, something that you will do because we see it so often, and uh, you can become um, experts in the treatment and assessment of bacteremia in a very short period of time um, in your in your career and day to day practice. So, with that, I'll stop and I'll take any questions. Thank you all very much.